You ever hear of the Banned Books Week? Like they do it in September most years. You know, the Library or Library of Congress, I think, sponsors one. But it's all catcher in the rye judo, I think. They realize that they ruin the catcher in the rye by assigning it to every high school student in America. And so they think, well, the only way we can rescue it from kids hating it is say that it's been banned. And we'll use the illicit to make, make people maybe want to read it. You know, it's the banned book idea. You notice when they say, let's read the banned books this month, they never mean like the protocols of the elders of Zion or something like that. You know, they, they always mean catcher in the rye. It's usually really just a catcher in the rye. But uh, Mark's been banned a lot. We're going to start a uh, series today on the Gospel of Mark, along with the other Gospels, the other three eyewitness accounts of Jesus and his ministry, um, along with the whole Bible, of which these Gospels make up kind of the central stream, have been banned as subversive in a lot of places that where people thought, uh, we don't need to just be letting people read this stuff because they might start believing it and taking it seriously and acting on it. Uh, Diocletian started this uh, in the 300s in Rome. said, uh, we're not going to be having those Bibles if we can help it and tried to destroy them. I remember when I was uh, high school and college, people used to sneak Bibles into the Soviet Union. Uh, Brother Andrew and his ilk took pretty big risks trying to get copies of the Scriptures into the Soviet Union. These days, it's more often an Islamic country that will have prohibitions against anyone having or reading the Bible. That's why the U.S. military burned Bibles at the Bahram Air Base in 2009 that had been printed into uh, local dialects, uh, presumably for the cause of proselytization. And so it's not that uncommon uh, for people to look at the Bible, especially the Gospels, especially the message Jesus came to bring and say, yeah, I don't know if we want to have that here. Um, that's a little subversive. That turns over the apple cart of the way things are and the way we like them. And so maybe we're just not going to have that around here. And I think most Christians, when they hear that, we think, oh, no, no, you don't need to ban the Bible. I mean, the Bible's not subversive. It's just, it's just a book that tells us to be nicer. Right? I mean, it's, it's about as subversive as Ned Flanders. You know, it's, no, it's not, it's not subversive. But if you start to read it closely, and I hope, as we'll see, as we start in and go through the Gospel of Mark, it really is subversive. And Diocletian had the right instinct early on that this book is going to be a problem for him and anybody else who's trying to run any kind of a kingdom in this world, right? Because the Gospel of Mark is a book about an invasion. It's about Jesus's invasion of his world to take it back, to establish himself as the rightful king of it and to fix it, to set it back to rights the way it's supposed to be. So that's what we're going to look at. Mark jumps right into that. So um, we'll see that as we look at this first section in Mark 1. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, or you can follow along in the bulletin where the same text is printed. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we ask that you would uh, give us new eyes on what you say here um, through uh, Peter's eyewitness account and Mark's uh, writing about it in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Some of us have 
been very familiar with the Gospels and uh, don't feel the force of them as much as we did at first. And others are new and it's a lot to process. And so please come help us, meet us. We want to know you. We don't want to just understand this. We want uh, you to invade our lives and transform us. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. I watched a movie with Julie this week that I don't uh, recommend, but it just felt better than scrolling through to find something that might have been better. But uh, it was called Don't Look Up. Uh, it was on Netflix, and uh, it's not Up, the Disney movie with the balloons in the house and stuff. It's, uh, it's about some scientists who discover that there is a meteor heading straight for Earth. And they've, of course, figured this out sooner than everyone else because of their telescopes. And they realize the more they run the numbers, the more certain they are. This thing is on a direct collision course. They can tell where on Earth it's going to hit and when. And so they think, better tell people, right? We better let people know, see if there's anything that we can do. And the uh, setup of the movie is no one listens to them. And, And it's pretty vexing. They're trying to tell people, no, this is real. It's really coming. There's not any big question about this. It's coming. And yet people wouldn't listen. And so they're trying to figure out what are we being too technical when we try to talk about it? Because one of the scientists, you know, would always go into the details and it wasn't very helpful. And then um, then they say, well, if they just come out and say it very frankly, hey, uh, there's a meteor coming. It's going to hit and we're all going to die six months from now. People would say, well, you're just a crazy person. So we're not listening to you either. And so there they were. They were vexed, you know, and it sort of felt like what they needed was an Ernest Hemingway version of their story of what's going on, you know, concise, direct, uh, and realistic, you know, lay it out there just like we need to hear it, and maybe we'd be persuaded. It wasn't a movie about how to persuade people. It was a movie about, well, it seems to me how crummy we are as a society about listening to messages. Yeah, but that's not the point I bring it up for. It's the Hemingway stuff I wanted. It's uh, You've got an urgent message about an extinction event, and you need to make this message known to people. How do you go about it? And Mark, who seems to be writing Peter's memoir about uh, his ministry, uh, his experience of Jesus as an eyewitness, um, is very Hemingway-esque. He's very action-driven. He's very concise and succinct and gets right to the point. You don't see a long narrative about the, the birth of Jesus like you see like in Matthew or uh, in Luke's Gospels. You don't have a lot of sermons. You don't even have the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Mark. 
He's just the facts. This is what happened. This is what happened. And this happened. This and this happened. This happened. What are you going to do about it? And he gets across the urgency he seems to feel in declaring what's going on in Mark's gospel, which is it's the story of an invasion. That Jesus Christ has invaded his world to reclaim it and to press his rightful claims as our Lord and King. And so that's what Mark does, and that's why he jumps right off by saying something other than, you know, in the beginning was the Word, like John says, or the genealogy, like Matthew says. He just gets right to it. He says, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom. And so I want us to look at it, jump in and look at both the announcement that... uh, that uh, Mark is making at the beginning of his book, and then the response that we're directed to have to that announcement right away through what John the Baptist said. All right, so first, what's the announcement? When he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news, but it was a word that was used politically in the ancient Near East. Like, uh, gospel would be a proclamation or an announcement, like if there was the birth of an emperor, if the king had a child, or... uh, if it was uh, the enthronement day of a king, they would call that a gospel announcement. Or even sometimes a big royal visit, they would call a gospel announcement. It's a proclamation about something that's happening that you need to know uh, on the royal level. So what is the proclamation being made here? You know, it's, it's first, who, who is Jesus and, and uh, why is He here? Now, that's the proclamation. Who is He? Why is He here? And who is He? He says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 1. And those words are familiar to us. They'd have been more striking to people who first heard them. Um, I'm surmising that you know that Christ is not Jesus' surname, uh, but it's a title. It's Jesus the Messiah. Christ means Messiah. That means He was the expected one that had been talked about all through the Old Testament, um, that He was coming. And, you know, Mark is writing this. They say to the church at Rome, and around the early part of the uh, 60s A.D., it's when the eyewitnesses were starting to die off from Jesus' ministry. You know, when the apostles first preached, they would say, yeah, all these things happened, and there were 500 people that saw Him at one time alive after His resurrection. Go ask them. But that appeals waning now because people are dying off. And so Peter's writing Mark through Mark to say, you need to know who He is. Right, um, you're going to need to know who Jesus really is, and we need it too to know who He really is, because we live in a day where somehow it's gotten uh, fashionable or reasonable sounding to say uh, that you can sort of make up your own personal Jesus. I don't think Depeche Mode started that. Right, you uh, Talladega Nights didn't finish it either. Right, but people say, "Well, I like to think of Jesus as," or "To me, Jesus is," and you know, you say things that would be preposterous if you said them about anybody else. You know, because people are who they are. And we're being told who Jesus actually is. Uh, we're not being told, hey, here is a selection of things in a cafeteria that you might draw from that you find interesting or beautiful about Jesus. No, he's saying, no, this is who he is. Um, he is the Messiah. He's the one that's been promised, this king who's going to come and set things to rise. They've been waiting for him uh, since... The book of Genesis even, you know, that there's going to be a seed of the woman who will come crush the head of the serpent, it said back in the Garden of Eden. And then one greater than Moses is going to come as a prophet. One greater than David is going to come as a king. 
And he's going to have a kingdom that doesn't end. He's going to have a kingdom that, where there's justice and righteousness that flourish forever. All those promises. He's saying, yeah, this is him. This is the announcement that that king is here. And it's Jesus. He's Messiah. And then he says he is the Son of God. Again, a term that needs some explanation because you know, we think we're all God's children on some level. And even angels sometimes are called sons of God in the Bible. But uh, Mark makes it very clear that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. That He is uh, not just divine or has uh, characteristics of deep spirituality or something, but He's actually God Himself in human flesh. Um, when the Jews heard what Jesus said about Himself as the Son of God, they immediately recognized it as blasphemy and tried to stone Him to death for blaspheming, making Himself equal with God. He's uniquely claiming to be God's Son. So in verse 2, when uh, Mark is quoting Isaiah, we read that in the Old Testament reading, when he says, I send my messenger before you to prepare your way, prepare the way of the Lord. That, prepare the way of Yahweh. That's God Himself. That's who's coming. That's what the announcement is. God Himself in human flesh is coming uh, to invade the world and to reclaim it. And so that's what we're being told. That's who Jesus is. So then why is He here? You say, well, He's coming to fulfill the long promise to fix the world. Right? That He's come because the world isn't the way it's supposed to be because we have a massive war of independence against God and think that we'll be happier without Him. If you leave us to our own decisions, we'll make a life that flourishes more and is more beautiful and pleasant to us. Uh, all of which is demonstrably untrue, and yet we've ruined our lives and ruined the world because we wouldn't have Jesus as our King. And He's coming to set it back to rights. Fix us, our connection to Him, and to fix what we've broken. Um, When He quotes, He does this kind of mix in the second and third verses of Elijah, the ultimate speaking prophet, Moses, uh, the ultimate writing prophet and Isaiah, all together, he kind of he draws from several things in this quote. It's not just one place in the Old Testament that he draws this from, um, but he's saying all these promises all the way through Old Testament were pointing to Jesus and what he's going to come to be and do. He's going to come quash the rebellion against God, and he's going to come uh, have mercy on those who will seek mercy from him. So here's the question for you when you when you hear that. First, when you, there's an invasion of the true king who's unhappy about our war of independence against him. So he's coming to reassert his claim um, and to kick out the usurpers and take over the throne. Is that good news for you or bad news for you? I mean, when you first hear it, if you, if, you, if you could not import all the other things you know about the Christian faith... It's good news, but it's bad news. It's a threat to anybody who's trying to run a kingdom. Politically, certainly. But it's also a threat to anybody who's trying to run a kingdom in their own apartment or house or family or workplace. If you're going to try to rule your own life and be the master of your own fate, well, this is problematic news that Jesus is coming to reassert His rights because He's asserting them over you, over against you. Um. It's good news if you're willing to abdicate and look to Him for mercy. We'll come back to that a little bit. So here's the, that's the announcement. 
The true king of the world is invading. He's coming to reassert his claim. Um, and what's the response supposed to be? What's John the Baptist say? He starts it by preaching. Um, and, and he's an interesting character, John the Baptizer. He's, Jesus said he's Elijah, basically. Not a reincarnation of Elijah, but a reincarnation of uh, Elijah's job, right? He's got Elijah's job now as the prophet who speaks. The last thing in the Old Testament, 400 years ago, before uh, John spoke, the last thing written in Scripture was a promise that Elijah was going to come before the promised Messiah came and prepare the way for him. And Jesus said, yeah, that was John the baptizer. That was him. That's what it meant. He was the one who did that. And so he comes wearing Elijah's clothes, which is the locust and wild honey stuff. You know, that's... That's Elijah's outfit right there, you know, he's wearing. And he goes out to Elijah's place out in the wilderness, the desert. Um, it's hard to define desert and wilderness here. Uh, it's not a pretty desert like this one where stuff grows and lives. Right? It's, a, it's a desolate place where nothing grows or lives and it can't really sustain life. And it's the kind of place that God historically in the Old Testament would meet with His people. After he brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus, he met with them in the wilderness where they couldn't get water for themselves or food for themselves and they were dependent on him, but they weren't distracted uh, by anything except him. So here's John the Baptist out in the Moses place, out in the Elijah place, uh, saying, I'm here to prepare the way for the Messiah who's coming and basically saying to Jewish ears, I think, more than ours, I'm telling you there's a new Exodus about to happen. And the new Moses is about here to lead it. And I'm going to point him, point you to him when he comes. And does Elijah's job of pointing him that way. What does he say? Okay, there's the Messiah's finally coming. Really? Well, what's that's exciting. Everybody went out to listen to that message, right? It's weird that you think you're gonna go out to the wilderness and say, um, like the cataclysm of the ages is upon us. Um, someone's living now. Who is the promised Messiah and we're going to meet Him? You know, anybody who said anything like that, we would be dismissive of. We'd say they're a kook, right? Um, But everybody took Him seriously. They went out to listen. A lot of people went to a place that wasn't convenient to listen to His preaching. And what did He say? You know, it was not the kind of preaching that you would think you could advertise very well and get a lot of people to come to. His message was, um, the King is coming, you better repent. Right? You better get ready for him coming by repenting. Um, don't dilly dally around. He's here. And you better take it seriously. So the first thing he says is repent. And you know, he he you get descriptions of this in the other gospels that are more robust. He wasn't nice to people when he said this. You know, I've I've often tried to um, excuse when I've said harsh things to people by saying, Hey, well John the Baptist was mean to people. And my wife usually says, yeah, well, you're not him. And so, but, you know, he was mean to people. He called him, you're a bunch of sons of snakes. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And things like that, he says. But here, verse 4, he came baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this baptism, it's not like Christian baptism necessarily. I mean, it's similar, but it's more like one of the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament. They had a lot of washings. Usually, though, you did, did it yourself. You cleansed yourself before you went into the temple. Either for a 
like ceremonial uncleanness or something, like if you touched a dead body or uh, been around sickness or something, you know, you'd have to do cleansings. But um, but there were some of the washings that had to do with uh, moral impurity. You know, wash yourself to show that you're willing to open your heart and turn back to God with sincerity. And that's what this kind of baptism is that John does for them. It's a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So, you know, it's the moral kind. Yeah. And... Uh, and he does this because what he's saying is, hey, here's the announcement, the Messiah's coming, and that's a problem for you, right? You need to repent. Um, just waltzing in and saying, hey, this is great, the Messiah's coming, is a misread of the situation. Right? You are dealing with a king who's coming to press his claims over people like you who have decided to run your own lives, thank you very much. And that's not okay with him. And when he comes to set the world to rights, that has to change. Right? Your rule of your own life has to change. So the way you prepare for him is that you repent. Um, and you can see how this plays out in the rest of the book of Mark. When people come into contact with Jesus, some people like him and some people don't. And who doesn't like Jesus? Self-righteous people, inevitably. People who are content with their own goodness, their own spirituality, their own religiosity, they all bristle against him. Um, they never say, wow, when you preach, I really hear my sentiments echoed. And, you know, I'm encouraged about that. And let's talk. I'll say amen during your sermons because I think they're great. No, anybody who was content with their own goodness hated Jesus' sermons and ground their teeth. And uh, more often than not, conspired to kill him after his sermons. In other words, good conservative uh, observant, devout church people like us really struggled with Jesus and his message. Right? We're the ones that couldn't get our minds around him. People who liked him were the obvious moral ruins. right? People who weren't under any illusions about their own goodness and knew that nobody else was under illusions about their goodness either. They're the ones that warmed up to him. I mean, think, there are some people in the world, let's just say, who look at their nation and say, you know what, most of our problems as a society come from people with bad ideas that I disagree with, um, putting into power people who are poorly intentioned, uh, who rule unwisely and maliciously. And those people and their tribe are what makes our country so uh, perilously bad right now make me distressed about our future. And those people are a real problem. And other people would say, hypothetically, because these people don't exist, I don't think, the problem that is wrecking our society is that we're trying to manage people like me. And every time we elect somebody, we elect somebody like me. And I'm the kind of person that gets corrupted by power almost immediately. I'm the kind of person that becomes beholden to special interests without even trying. I'm the kind of person that cares more about my own reputation and power than the common good. So when we elect people, we're electing people like me. And then we're trying to get them to rule people like me. And no law they can make can deal with the mess of my life. You know, I'm an envious person. I'm a selfish person. I'm a greedy person. I'm a prejudicial person. And all these things about me... Even a good set of politicians couldn't touch or fix. No law could fix me. And that's the problem with our society is it's full of people like me. 
And saying this person existed, which I'm not convinced of, I'm saying this person would like Jesus, and this person wouldn't. If the problem is other people, if I'm a relatively good person and the other people are relatively bad people on the other side, um, if you think that way, Jesus is only going to be a problem for you. Because he doesn't come to congratulate anybody. He doesn't congratulate anybody. He comes to rescue everybody. And so this is what's difficult. That's why what John gives us at the beginning here is a diagnostic. You know, he's not saying, hey, you know, straighten up and fly right. You know, look busy because Jesus is coming. He's saying, no, you, you need to do some deep heart level uh, evaluation of yourself and realize that your project around your own life has foundered. And this rescue that Jesus is affecting by invading the world is the rescue you need. And that's kind of the second part of what he says is, not only do you have to repent, but you need faith in this Messiah who's coming. You need to put your trust and hope in Him. And the way he says that is kind of cryptic to us, but I think his Jewish audience would have understood more when he said, you know, I'm baptizing you with water, but the one who comes after me, the Messiah, is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And, you know, if you don't feel the Old Testament rootedness of that, it's just a confusing statement. You know, wait a minute, Jesus did baptize. We do have water baptism still, and isn't that kind of connected to the baptism of the Spirit? And we, But what, what uh, John is saying is, hey, the promises about the Messiah coming and reconnecting you to God and putting His Spirit in you, uh, the Messiah is going to fulfill these promises. Listen to this. This is from Ezekiel chapter 36, another one of the, the magisterial prophets. Talking about the Messiah coming... He says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from all your uncleannesses, from all your idols. I'll cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, to be careful to obey my rules. You'll dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and be my people and I'll be your God. And I'll deliver you from all your uncleannesses. That's what John is saying. He's going to be the one who comes and reconciles you to God. And he's not saying, since he's coming, baptize yourselves and clean yourselves up for him. He's saying, no, you need to be ready to receive the cleaning that he's going to give you. It's not something you can even do for yourself. But that's what he's saying. He's the only one who can reconcile you to God and you desperately need him to. Um, that's why the uh, question before when I said, is it good news or bad news that the rightful king is coming to reclaim his place? You know, it's bad news for us when we want to rule our own lives, but it's good news in this sense. If we uh, abdicate the throne and fall on His mercy, then the rightful King comes to connect us to Himself and say, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Like, it's this good. I heard uh, someone uh, tell a story of Eugene Peterson's funeral. He's a minister who died a couple of years ago that uh, I know a lot of you really liked and um, his son spoke at his funeral and he said my dad every night that I was under his roof that I remember came into my room at night and said four things to me which I already feel like a bad father telling the story but you know um, but he said he, he said four things to me he said um, God loves you and he is on your side and He is pursuing you. And He is relentless. 
How's that for a legacy? Right? God loves you. He's on your side. He's pursuing you. And He is relentless. Framed in those terms, the invasion is very good news. Right? It's very good news. It's tough if you're trying to run a kingdom. But if you're willing to advocate, it's good news. I think about the white witch. You know, when Aslan showed up in Narnia, she was trying to run a kingdom. And the snow started getting wetter. Like, um, my winter kingdom is melting. We're seeing signs of spring. And she's very distressed by this news. But Edmund, who is in her thrall because of his love of Turkish delight, um, doesn't know quite what to think. There are rumors that Aslan is on the move, the Christ figure. You know, Aslan is on the move. But I'm enthralled to the White Witch. I, I, is he going to hate me or is he going to rescue me? I don't know. I don't know. And for us, the declaration, the announcement of the invasion of Jesus is, um, he might well come to squash you, uh, but he isn't. He's coming in mercy. He's coming to rescue you, even if you don't deserve it, mainly because you don't deserve it. He's coming to rescue you. Aslan is on the move, is what Mark says uh, in his stark terms. What will be your response to him is the question he leaves us with. Now let's pray.